Welcome to Off Key, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman Wright. This season of Off Key will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how to. Our hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. Less than two weeks ago, I was serving customers at a bustling restaurant, running errands at the mall, and going to live concerts a few nights a week. On March 8th, I remember thinking to myself, while standing in a crowd of people at the Phoenix Theatre in Toronto, how lucky I was to be in Canada, a place where the novel coronavirus that was sweeping through other countries and dominating the news was not a major threat. I remember thinking how happy I was that I didn't have to forego the chance to see Alan Stone play live because of the risk of an infectious disease especially because my stubborn, music-loving self would have had a hard time not going to see one of my favorite artists in concert. Back then, COVID-19 seemed to be an anomaly that was under control, with a relatively small number of cases in the country that were clearly associated with travel. For those of us on the ground living our lives as usual, COVID-19 did not seem to be a threat. But just a week later, provincial governments started declaring a state of emergency effectively closing libraries, bars and restaurants, rec centers, cinemas, and live music venues across the country. To me, and I'm sure to many others, the past week has felt like a month, as life has changed so rapidly, with governments calling for people to work from home and self-isolate, grocery stores selling out of essential items due to panic buying, and people everywhere being laid off from their jobs. And for musicians, artists, tour teams, and other team members, this means that all gigs, tours, and festivals have been cancelled or postponed for at least the next couple of months a major upheaval in both music creators' ability to earn a living and the music industry at large. Obviously, without live shows, artists are facing a new trajectory for how to engage with their audiences. For many artists, self-isolation means more downtime and an opportunity for more creativity. But perhaps more pressing to talk about are the negative impacts the recent upheaval has had on their incomes and the incomes of their teams. Because of this, funds for artists affected by COVID-19's economic disruption have been popping up all over such as the Recording Academy's Music Cares Relief Fund, the Canadian National Arts Centre's Canada Performs Program, and the UK's Help Musicians Program. If you're an artist looking for financial relief or to fund a live stream concert, look out for funding programs like these. Also, if you're in Canada, the government's $82 billion COVID-19 Emergency Response Aid Package will offer another option alongside the Federal Employment Insurance Program, or EI, for people in need of financial support. There are also provincial income support programs, and if you're someone who's struggling to make ends meet at this time, definitely look into those in your province. I've attached some links to some of these programs in the episode description, so check those out. Beyond funding programs and government financial assistance, artists are employing new ways to earn money, especially through online resources, primarily live streaming. In the past week, you've probably seen live stream after live stream popping up on your Instagram, with celebrities like John Legend, Miley Cyrus, and Chris Martin performing songs and engaging with fans over Instagram Live. For celebrities of this level, staying at home and live streaming for free is not a problem. However, for most artists, both emerging, mid-level, and even relatively established, 
actively making money from their music is extremely important to their livelihood, and arguably important at a broader level for music to continue to be seen as valuable by the general public. Thus, some live streams have been partially or fully monetized and will likely continue to be in the coming months, as this crisis creates a new normal for the ways artists perform for their audiences. For example, indie artist Ron Gallo did a live stream called Hashtag Stay the Fuck Home and asked for donations from fans via PayPal and Venmo, while Frank Turner did a live stream on Facebook and fundraised over $20,000 for his touring team, who lost their incomes due to cancellations. Now, I think it is important to note that live streaming can't make up for all of the losses that have been incurred in the midst of this crisis and in its coming aftermath. But there is still opportunity in these new forms of engagement online, and they will likely develop rapidly as demand for them is now increasing. Sherry Hu, an award-winning journalist who writes about the music industry and technological innovation, has made an amazing Google Doc called the Virtual Music Events Directory, where she outlines key platforms artists can use, as well as some upcoming live stream events. Along with financial issues, Sherry also points out that live streaming is not a perfect cultural or emotional substitute for real concerts. But at the same time, it's no longer a niche tool. Restructuring the music industry and the ways artists relate to their audiences is a massive project that we're now faced with. Live streaming and other online formats of engagement are only in their infancy and will likely develop in unprecedented ways as we progress through this crisis and through its aftermath, which is likely to be years if we think about the many ways it will reverberate throughout the world economic system. This week, I spoke with two artists to get a better understanding of how they're adjusting in the context of COVID-19 and what this means for their artistry. I spoke with Kieran McMillan, or Kubla, an emerging artist in Toronto, as well as Juno award-winning singer-songwriter from Vancouver, BC, Dan Mangan. In the context of this crisis, I'm sure every artist is dealing with it in their own way, but I hope Kieran's and Dan's advice and perspectives help other artists in this situation, whether you're emerging and just starting out as an artist, or whether you're already established in the national music scene and beyond. Uh, so Kubla is uh, the creation of me, Kieran, um, and I made it because I was a working professional musician for about five or six years. Uh, I was full time for about five and uh, I just saw the way that the gig economy was kind of going and I realized that the future was in the hands of creative artists and not people who were doing uh, just live shows where they're very minimum, minimally promoting themselves and creating a space mm. for themselves. So my goal with uh, with Kubla was to create a space for um, people who are kind of like me, people who are um, a bit smarter, a bit nerdier, um, but still enjoy really cool music and really cool vibes and, and times to listen to um, uh, music that they felt spoke to them and relate to them. Mm-hmm. And what kind of music do you do? Would you say? I'd say it's uh, it's kind of like a combination between um, uh, a lot of traditions in Black American music, um, including what they call like soul and R and B and jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I'd say that there's a lot of influence of things like funk and rock and uh, fusion and just basically all the kinds of music that I like. Yeah, totally. And um, so I know like a big thing for you is playing live, mm-hmm. having known you mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Um, so like in the context of everything that's just happened here in Toronto in less than a week, right? It was mm-hmm. like Thursday or Friday that everything sort of hit. Yeah. Um, how have you been adjusting? 
Um, as a matter of fact, fine. Uh, I feel as if the transition has been good for me because my habit has kind of been to play live shows, to really just book live shows. Because as you said, it's been mm-hmm. a, it, it's a, it's a real strength for me as well as a, um, as well as just something I've done a lot of. Like in the past six years, I, I've, mm-hmm. I think I've played, I, I counted a few months ago and I think I've played over like 1,200 shows. Um, <laughs> which is a lot very in various groups like playing guitar not all the same kind of stuff but the, the real focus for me now is instead on the things that I feel like I'm more weak at which is uh, developing my personality in uh, the social media space and um, understanding myself in that space because I just realized there's so many things that I don't know about myself um, with regards to how I project my personality and my and my music online, um, it's very easy to fall into what you could make that people would just find acceptable, but it's harder to be yourself because you're mm-hmm. recording things and all that, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it seems like that's going to become even more important now with so much of it being online. Um, and, like, like, do you... Do you ever get overwhelmed by like wanting to put out content? That's especially now it's going to be your main sort of business tactic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like how how are you going to plan that? Well, it's uh, it really is a war of attrition in that you you I I often bite off way more than I can chew, uh, and then mm-hmm. I realize I'm biting off more than I can chew. But I think that's a good tendency. It's good not to be too safe about how you're mm-hmm. putting yourself out there because first of all, um, not many people are going to see you. Um, first off and second off if you focus on making something too perfect uh you'll never be able to recreate it even if it blows up so um it's good to follow your instincts and also to allow the output to follow the creativity so that what you're making as you're making it keeps getting better and better and it keeps becoming more and more of a sustainable process so that's kind of just what i'm in the middle of right now it's just like trying to figure out content schedules trying to like create video concepts that are that are like not easy to make, but easy for me to make. I'm doing a lot of video creation. Uh, there's a lot of uh, just curating photos that people have taken of me live. There's a lot of live streaming. Live streaming is a huge and really, really amazing part of modern technology. That yeah. especially when you have an audience. I was I have a like I have a medium-sized audience. Um, it was relatively difficult for me to find, and and so far it's been amazing to connect with them on that level especially during this time mm-hmm. um totally and because of that i feel uh i feel like there's a degree of hope um mm-hmm. and so it's it's especially useful at my level because a lot of my audience doesn't quite know me yet and it's great to put myself in a position where i can really just be candid like instead of cuz you know when you're making videos of yourself you're often worrying that you're coming off disingenuous or that you're too weird or whatever (laughs) yeah it can be a it can be a big thing um so live streaming really gives me a sense for who i'm talking to and also who i'm not talking to as well i'm dan mangan i am a songwriter and recording artist spent the last decade and a half touring Uh, And I've also done some film and television soundtrack work and recently co-founded a community platform uh, called Side Door. Yeah, I I spent like a week in like this terrible emotional, mental, 
fetal position, you know, um, <laughs> dealing with all the cancellations and, and just like the general sort of doom and gloom of it all. And yeah. I have to say that, you know, I, I did a, an online show on Saturday and for an hour, this like incredible community was, was done. We did it over zoom. And so you could go into gallery mode and flip through pages of like 25 videos at a time of everybody. And so I could see families sitting on couches and dancing and high-fiving and like animals, you know, pets and stuff. And <laughs> it was just mm -hmm. like, I don't know. It really, it, I mean, on a personal level, it kind of warmed my heart, but then also in terms of side door and, you know, the role that side door can play in all this, it really like lit a fire mm -hmm. in me of like, okay, well, you know, it's sort of, I always think when, when I was, uh, a server back, I used to serve, serve tables for a long time. And I would always think like, if everything went perfectly well, you'd get a 15% tip, but if something went terribly wrong and you went yeah. over and above to solve the problem and, and make them make the customer feel good, you'd get a 25% tip. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that that principle translate across the board in life that like, you know, if you can really show your stars in a time of crisis, that, mm -hmm. you know, that eventually like, you know, there, there's a net surplus. And, and so I, you know, I, I'm really excited at this point about like just how side door can play a role in helping artists, um, you know, yeah, kind totally. of roll with the punches over the coming months. Yeah. Um, and could you speak a little more about like, what was your plan right before all these announcements hit as an mm -hmm. artist? And then like, oh, how did you adjust? <laughs> So I, I had like a crazy few months planned. I was going to um, play some shows in, in Southern Ontario. And then I was going to go to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest. I was going to come home the next day. My family and I were going to go on our first vacation in nine years. The oh first vacation we've ever done with our kids. Uh, we were going to go to Mexico for six days. Um, and then I was going to come back. I was going to go straight back to Toronto. We were going to get on the bus and we were going to go to Chicago and head West on our Canadian tour of the 10th anniversary of my album. Nice, nice, very nice. Um, so within a couple days, 21 of my shows were either canceled or postponed. Um, and then that tour was going to end a couple weeks later. Uh, I was going to head to Quebec and do a, a couple weeks worth of shows with Matt Holubowski through like rural Quebec. It looks like those are likely also canceled or postponed. Um, and I think that we've got, I don't know, 10 or 12 summer engagements, festivals and things like that, um, that are currently all up in the air and who knows what's going to happen there. So there's, you know, my professional life in terms of touring is, just come to a screeching halt right when it was about to get going in, in, in a massive way. Wow. So um, can you tell me about your show to nobody at the Danforth? Because I remember seeing promotion for that and being like, oh, yeah. cool, maybe I'll go to this. <laughs> well, yeah. So we, on March the uh, 11th, I think it was, no, March, yeah, March, March the 12th, uh, we had a sold out show at the Danforth. And during the day, we were, you know, waiting hour by hour to see, are we going to go ahead with this? What's going on? Mm -hmm. and at that point, you know, the NBA had shut down, the NHL had shut down. 
but like we were in touch with like you know nonstop with Toronto Public Health, and we were getting mm-hmm. like what's the directive from the city, what's safe, what's not safe, and uh, you know as of four thirty p.m. we had to make the call. You know according to the city's directives, the show should go on, and um, and so we did the show, and it was this crazy energy. Like I think everyone in the room was kind of like, okay, this is our last hurrah for a while, you know. Right. And it was this beautiful, beautiful, magical night um, that I will not forget. We just had, I don't know, it was like it was like walking into a, a living room with like you know a thousand of your best buds or something like that. It yeah. didn't really feel like a show or like a big production or anything, and and so. You know, that was Thursday night. By Friday morning, uh, Toronto, City of Toronto had, had said, you know, no gatherings, over 250 people. And it was clear, like, you know, and at that time, like, literally by the hour, like, the general hive mind of society was changing in its, in its sort of yeah. attention and, and response to coronavirus. And, and so Friday morning, we we're like, okay, well, we can't do the show tonight. We had two nights booked at the Danforth. Right. And so we we had to cancel the Friday night show and we head there at about 5 p.m. to tear everything down. All of our gear, because we had left everything yeah. set up from the night before. Like literally my guitar is just like on a stand beside my microphone right up at the front of the stage. Like nothing had been moved or torn down after the show on Thursday because we had uh, two nights at the Danforth. And uh, we're kind of texting during the day and we're like, okay, meet you guys at five, you know, with the band and Don, my my drummer, he's he was like, well, what if we just play it anyways and like taped it? I was like, oh, that's, that's a pretty good idea. I was having a pretty crummy day and feeling all yeah. stressed out, and, and I was like, ah, yeah, it's pretty cool, but I don't know. And and then he, with his buddy Craig Small, who um, actually designed, we have this sort of globe orb of light thing that we bring out at the mm-hmm. end of the shows, and uh, we call it the Hammer Sphere. And uh, Craig, who designed that, pulled together a, a, a crew like of, of camera operators in just like an hour. And everybody wow. showed up. And, and so we did it. Like we didn't do a full show, but we did, I think, maybe like six songs or something like that. And in full production in the stage. And it was like this weird, eerie kind of vibe. Like there's nobody in the hall, but we're doing this full show. It was kind of mm-hmm. like, a, like a weird sound check. And, um, but it, it, it was a positive experience, you know, we were like, okay, we're trying to make lemonade out of lemons here. And, um, and then we put a couple teasers on over the weekend and Craig and Nigel and Cam who made, who documented everything. They were just editing it all together like mad. And then we broadcast it on Monday evening as a premiere on YouTube. And I was just blown away. There was like 1100 people tuned in and, uh, and there was like a chat and we, I was kind of doing a play by play of what was going on and talking about the band and talking about the songs and stuff. And, um, it was exhilarating. Like at the end of everything, I couldn't believe, um, like it was almost as if like the thrill of playing a real show on Friday night was just postponed until Monday. Like after this <laughs> digital online thing, I felt the same sort of adrenaline rush as I tend to get at the end of a real show but it was just waylaid. Mm-hmm. So um, really remarkable experience. Yeah, and, that's really you know, cool. and then the press picked it up and it was uh, within a, a couple of days I had 
a dozen press requests <laughs> because of <laughs> playing a show to nobody. Um, and then, yeah. you know, I think we were at 12 hours ahead of the rest of the internet because by the time even a couple days had passed, it was like, oh, you can see John Legend or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Lady Gaga or, you know, like everybody was just doing these these online shows and streaming and stuff like that. But we, we, we just kind of got out of the gate with this weird show for nobody. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up like how how you felt when you premiered it, how it was similar to a live show. Because I've I was doing some reading, um, and a lot of artists have said that FaceTiming or organizing that live stream where you're like playing and then you're live conversing with fans is almost more intimate than a show in some ways, and then also mm. less intimate in other ways. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting because it, it's like a new way of relating. Um, and it's not necessarily bad, but it's it's just so different. It's so yeah. cool. Well, yeah. it's and and you know I've done some Instagram live stuff, and it's really cool because people are just like typing songs, and mm -hmm. you know you kind of requesting as you go, and it's it feels very off the cuff. Like and because it's so informal, you can you could play half a song. You don't have to play the whole thing. You could just kind of play a little bit and then change gears or whatever. I will say that the the online show I did on Saturday, uh, we did it over Zoom, and that was really amazing because everybody's mic was muted but mine so i could kind of control that as the host right um but but most people i'd say about 80 90 percent of people tuning in turned on their cameras so even though their mics were muted um everyone could see each other and yeah. it was it was really interesting because one thing that i don't like about general sort of live streaming is that i'm sending out this signal and everyone can see me but Mm -hmm. I can't see them, you know, it's very one-sided. And I will say that there was something kind of special about being able to see everyone um, responding in like, you know, and they're all typing. There's like a chat forum on the side, but, but um, yeah, that, that brought like a, a different thing. Like I could see people crying and, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's very, very touching. Online tools like live streaming are great ways for artists to connect with their audiences, especially at a time when in-person engagement isn't feasible. But the question for artists now is how to turn the demand for live concerts into demand for live stream concerts. Kieran and Dan both shared their thoughts on the future of artist incomes and whether live streaming will play a role. People saying, you know, we're going to do live stream concerts and like Erica Badu is going to do like for $1 Apocalypse One live stream, and people are asking for donations through PayPal or Venmo. Um, mm -hmm. So like, have you found a way or thought about a way to monetize these live streams now that gigging is sort of canceled indefinitely? Well, with this is the thing with the gig economy is that, and this is kind of the reason that I wanted to get out of it in the first place, is that I didn't actually, mm -hmm. I didn't really ever feel like I was giving value. like. The great thing about putting on your own show is that people voluntarily come, they buy tickets, um, mm -hmm. and you get the money from the tickets that they buy. And that that is a really... But most of the gigs that I've played haven't been like that. Most of the gigs that I've played have been me being a, an accessory to, to the establishment or as mm -hmm. part of the party, where there's not really a direct value relationship to the people who I'm performing for. Um, but as of now, because of the size of my audience, I don't really feel comfortable with monetizing them. Um, yeah. And also, in the years that I gigged, uh, I've, I've always lived very meagerly, and um, I, I kind of call myself, jokingly call myself as a person, not as an artist, 
I'm a cockroach because I feel pretty <laughs> I feel pretty comfortable with uh, with living off of off, off of pretty little. Um, okay. So I'm kind of exercising that right now as well and working toward a place where I feel really comfortable with asking for my audience, asking uh, value for my audience because I feel like I'm giving them a lot of value. As of now, I really feel like I'm I'm um, I'm just thrashing at this point. I'm just I'm just learning. Right. This is, right. This is a big learning process. Okay, and in the pro in the context of like COVID nineteen, are you are you nervous about making money as an artist? Um, in the long term, uh, yes. But I was just looking at the um, the financial relief plans that uh, the government's rolling out right now, the Canadian government. Yeah. And um, I feel pretty comfortable with the fact that. Uh, I'm eligible, and even if I'm not, I'm not uncomfortable with the idea that I just have to work myself into the system in a different way and get a different kind of job. I'm sure there's lots of kinds of jobs out there, whether it be teaching, uh, teaching music, or uh, or being part of a uh, like even working for a record label or things where I could a learn a lot and be even working in a restaurant. There's still things that I have to learn about being a person, and I think that it all benefits my art in some way. And I feel no sense of entitlement to making money as an artist, and that I never have. And I really feel like, in a backwards kind of way, that's what's allowed me to make money as an artist, is because mm. um, I really understood that there's a value relationship between myself and the music I produce and the people that I produce it for, and that if I miss the mark on how it is that I'm, I make the music and it doesn't give the value to people in the way that they want it, that I take a, I take a lot of ownership over that. So I really want mm -hmm. to continue to do that and it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a meditative practice in a way um right because you really just have to be mindful of what you're actually doing and what you're feeling and to me wanting to make money as an as an artist is a really big dream of mine it always has been but um mm -hmm. i can't let the emotion of the desire take over my uh reality because right yeah and so in the like a larger um, more broad sense, like, because I work in a restaurant, right? So mm. I've been seeing how things are closing left and right and, like, people are getting laid off like crazy. Like, just in the last few days, it's just been chaos. Um, so, like, do you see, maybe at a, at a broader level, whether it's you as an artist or your friends as an artist doing live stream concerts, do you see that as, like, a viable option for a prolonged period of time? If you, for example, can't get a gig, if you can't work in a restaurant, if you can't go apply for jobs at a label like you know what I mean uh, depends the, the thing is mm -hmm. with this with working as an artist and, and any kind of entrepreneurial effort is that you have an audience um, that is there for you so it will work for some artists like you mentioned Erica Badu yeah Erica Badu clearly has an audience she definitely has enough <laughs> yeah. of an audience that if she were to charge one dollar for a live stream concert that she would have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who would be interested in paying a dollar. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a good chunk of change. But for me, you know, even if I charged a dollar for, uh, you know, the, the 2,100 people who follow me on Instagram or whatever, uh, not only would most of them not probably be more interested in seeing Erica Badu, um, cause there's definitely going to be some overlaps and overlap in the audience. Yeah, um, for sure. charging a dollar wouldn't really give me a lot to survive on. So I think that being very direct in how it is that you 
address the the situation and understand the value that you present taking a chance as well like you can take a chance on live streaming but i don't think that it's a very viable way to make money in the long term mostly yeah. because of the technological constraints like the the audio quality isn't very high um the uh you can you can like do things to work around that but it takes a, it takes quite a bit so i would say that the better way of doing that is finding ways to um, ask for patronage from your audience uh, if you have one and if you don't have one just to give yourself the the financial um, fundamental uh, support that you need so that you can put yourself in a space that you could create an audience which sometimes like right. depending on who you are um, sometimes it's really easy to find the audience that you want to connect with and sometimes it's hard to even know who where to start so yeah I've been just doing a lot of reading and understanding and um, like the space there's this guy named Seth Godin that I really like um, who's a he he runs uh, a lot of entrepreneurial programs um, but he has a particular fo focus on artists as a as a concept right um, but I would recommend just any just any education that you can give yourself um, is so important when it comes to these kinds of situations because in the same way that you might have been in university if you'd gone to university or something like that um, during a time where you're not necessarily making an income and hopefully you don't have a ton of dependents like children or what have you yeah. but if you're if you're someone like me who's in his mid-twenties and doesn't have a great deal on uh, at, at risk then it's a really good idea to give as much time as you can to educating yourself because um, you know even though making money is great and making rent is super important you can always work any job um, once the jobs actually start coming back <laughs> yes or you can apply for financial assistance if you're in Canada <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I, people in America have a much different situation um, mm -hmm. but uh, and I feel for them, but being in Canada, I feel quite fortunate. It's part of the reason as well that I've moved to Toronto as opposed to a place like Los Angeles, because uh, I know many, many Canadian artists right now who are stuck on artist visas and can't, and can't find a oh way home, yeah. which, is, uh, which is a really bad situation to be in. However, you know, like, again, finding a sense of community. I'm, I'm a huge fan of optimism. I think that, that staying optimistic in times like this is a really good idea. Absolutely. But only, obviously, not stupidly optimistic. I think it's really important to have a strategic mindset about it. But to make sure that, you know, you've, you've 24 hours a day, you're spending eight of that sleeping, sleeping really well, you're spending some of that eating really well, but the other time you're spending, um, that you're not spending watching Netflix or what have you, that you're spending thinking about some strategy that you have to make this into a better situation than it was before. Because I think that when it comes to this kind of collapse in our artist, artist economy, that... Um, we we get a chance to look at the at the patterns, good and bad, that were present in the previous way of life that we had, and we get to examine them, and ho hopefully overturn them. So back to live streaming. Um, mm -hmm. Are you are you looking to monetize them? More in the future, or like, do you see this as like a viable option for a prolonged period of time? Like. How do you feel about monetizing it? Yeah, I, I feel great about monetizing it. I think that I think that that's it's the only way to proceed. There's this uh, like there's been this general understanding that you give everything away online on demand 
stream it, whatever, you give it all away in the desperate, like sort of grasping for exposure. And the idea is that if you get enough exposure, that when you actually go and tour, people will spend money on tickets to come see you play. And so under the circumstance that no one can go outside (laughs) and we can't (laughs) gather, you know, I think that it's just going to, it's going to cause the paradigm to shift and it's going to say, okay, well, you know, maybe actually what we should be doing is, is if you believe in somebody's art, you know, you should, I mean, again, like if you're willing to pay $50 or, you know, for Erica Badu, if you're willing to pay a hundred dollars to see her live, would you be willing to pay $1? I mean, I used to spend, you know, between three and $10 at a coffee shop almost every single day, you know, and I'm not doing that right now. So, um, you know, would I spend $6 to like tune into, of course, like, you know, I'm sitting, you know, like, would, would I rather watch a concert with my family than another Disney movie? Like, that'd be great, you know? So um, there's, I think that, I don't know, like this this one that I did on Saturday, I feel like it's something to look forward to. I'm going to do it every single Saturday as long as this isolation is in, in full swing. And yeah, and it, it felt like relief, like it felt like something to look forward to. And um, I mean paying like, like $6 for an hour of entertainment, you know, that is live and interactive. That's, you know, that's the same price as renting a movie on Apple TV. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that that's too much to ask. And Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I, I think that again, the honeymoon of like everything for free because it's fun and we all love each other. Um, is part of this general honeymoon that we're all in right now, which is like, oh, I'm connecting with myself and I'm reading books and I'm going for bike rides because I I can't go to work. And in a way, it's been like this weird relief from the rat race. And Mm -hmm. I do fear that if this isolation lasts for months and months and months, that things are going to get really dark because people are going to get really lonely. And um, so... You know, I think there was a time when the, the idea of like, you know, you would go to Blockbuster mm-hmm. and you would pay $5 to rent a movie. But when someone said, well, would you pay $5 to stream a movie? And you'd be mm-hmm. like, God, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And now it's shifted yeah, all yeah. the way to the idea that like, actually, well, why would I need a DVD? I just stream it. So, you know, it's, it's everything like things that seem constant quickly become not constant when the parameters and the context of the interaction change. And right now we're undergoing a huge sort of like worldwide shift in in how we interact. In order to make money off of live streams, there needs to be technology in place to do so. As of now, there are many platforms that artists can use, whether they want to do a live stream concert for free by donation, or pay what you can, or as a paid ticketed event. Some free platforms that are available to anyone include Zoom, Instagram, or Facebook, while other platforms like Twitch or YouTube Live allow free access to viewers but also include the ability for them to contribute financially. For paid ticketed live streams, platforms include Stageit, Key, and Patreon. Dan Mangan also talked about a community platform that he co-founded called SideDoor, While this was originally based around in-person shows, hosted at various unique venues, 
Dan explained how Sidor is adjusting now in the context of a global pandemic. So Sidor is something that I co-founded a couple of years ago. It's um, it's a community platform. Um, it's kind of like a very friendly and transparent marketplace, really. But um, you could think of it like Airbnb for shows. So the the general principle okay. is that any any space at all can be a venue. So your living room, your backyard, your bookstore, your office, your art gallery, your warehouse, your juice factory, um, and all of those places are venues on the platform. Um, so we launched about a year ago. There's about 900 venues and about 2,300 artists, and we've you know f- booked about 700 shows. And oh, wow. um, it's kind of taken over my life. You know, I, I joke that I started got getting into music so I wouldn't have to have a job. And now I have two full-time jobs. But um, wow. it's, you know, it's it's been really remarkable, this project. And it started just as a labor of love. And now it's developed into something that's like a like a real business. And um and you know we've we've built the whole thing from a very artist centric perspective and just trying to figure out you know using my gut check of 14 years on the road mm-hmm. what helps artists what's actually helpful and what is just further selling hopes and dreams and you know our the 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 model of our i think back to my first show in Calgary and there was four people there and i begged the venue for months to let me come and play and what else did i expect and then I came back to Calgary a few months later and played in this guy Doug's backyard to 60 of his friends. None of them knew who I was, but they all put money in a hat and, you know, I made 700 bucks and sold a million CDs. And it was just like this incredible experience. And I realized I don't, it's not the venue that I need. It's Doug. Like I need, I need a Doug in every single city. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's kind of how you can have a spark and fan it into a flame and actually build an audience. And, so that principle is is very much alive on on side door, you know, and and if house concert is sort of like the nucleus, like the image in your mm-hmm. head that comes to mind, I'm sure you've been to some house concerts. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the big sort of light bulb moments for us when we were building it is, is it doesn't have to be a house, and it also doesn't have to be a concert. So, you know, it could be comedy or a lecture, or any kind of performance whatsoever. And all you need is a place and a you know a motivated host and a space and, and you can put those pieces together and so we built right. a ticketing IP and you know you you match our, our artists and host match and then they're walked through like a really simple booking interface where they can set up the show and negotiate a, a split of the revenue and then tickets are sold uh, that revenue is held in escrow until um, the show occurs and then right as soon as the show's over all of that money gets dispersed into directly into everyone's bank accounts based on the pre-negotiated split. So it's very simple, very transparent. And like, you know, our, our whole thing is we want anybody, you know, we, we want you to, your, your grandmother to feel like this is a platform she can use, you know, and invite yeah. friends over to have yeah. a show at, in her living room or something. Cool. Yeah. I actually have been working for so far. Um, and that, that's something that like, so far sounds has really opened my mind too because like obviously the shows are so good with with the intimacy they create um but also on a deeper level for artists it's like they're they have this audience that is so open and like they have no idea what they're gonna get and they're just silent they don't have their phones out and 
that's so rare to find in a live concert setting, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So that sounds kind of similar to what you guys are doing, which is really special. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and that, that feeling of intimacy, that's where you can kind of really feel like you know the performer and that mm-hmm. that sort of feeling, it, it reciprocates, right? And it's sort of, it creates those situations where the whole's greater than the sum of the parts and and that everyone feels like they've experienced something special. And so far it's done a really good job of, you know, showing that there's like this worldwide appetite for these kind of unique uh, alternative gigs. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, their model relies heavily on volunteers and it relies heavily on um, built-in costs and, and there's a lot of overhead yeah. and so they aren't able to really pay artists very well. Um, and, and, you know, even after running thousands and thousands of shows, they're still only paying 50 or a hundred bucks. And so, so our, what our model does is it sort of takes the 30,000 foot view of that and what they're doing and saying, Hey, there's something really special that they're accomplishing. Um, Mm -hmm. how can we sort of remove all of the inside curation and let the marketplace curate itself? And people basically our, our value proposition to the world is you know, you've been to a so far, it was beautiful. It was a great experience. You can be so far, you can host anyone you right. want. You can go on there and curate it for yourself and bring arts and culture to your community. And in doing so, just by removing ourselves as the curators, we mm-hmm. get out of the way and take away a lot of those costs. So all of that revenue is then passed on to the artists and uh, and the hosts. So, you know, we have a very sort of um, light touch uh as, as opposed to uh like a like a gatekeeping curation rule right okay and how is side door adapting right now well that's yeah that's just it so i mean you know we had lots of shows booked through um, and through the spring and the summer and you know they've been canceled because of COVID 19 and mm-hmm. so very quickly we had to sort of adapt and figure out you know what is side doors role during this time and so we're sort of pivoting the platform to allow ticketed online shows. Um, I did one from my basement yesterday, or on Saturday, cool. I should say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was like 250 people tuned in, and we raised like $1,260 for the Vancouver Food Bank. And, wow. you know, it's just, it, it, I, I really want to, it's amazing, like, as soon as the coronavirus thing came through, it was... You know, there was so many sort of like uh, celebrities streaming, you know, it was like you, your Instagram feed was just nonstop guitar, guitars and pianos, you know, <laughs> and um, and it was kind of beautiful. It was like this moment where everyone was like, oh, man, I could just do this all the time. I could just like stream myself. And this is yeah. what I love to do, playing music. Why, why don't I just do this all the time? And um, mm-hmm. and I think that that was like a really beautiful moment and in, in sort of honeymoon. But then there's like the greater discussion of okay well how how do the, can these artists sort of stay employed throughout this yeah. period and so one thing i wanted to do right out of the gate with just like charging a ticket for an online show is like putting a line in the sand and saying like it's okay to do this i got you know me personally I'm, I'm i'm giving those proceeds away to charities but i just i just wanted to see as almost as an experiment like are people willing to pay if they're willing to pay $45 for a ticket in a club, would they pay six, $6 to sit at home and watch it? And resoundingly the, the response is yes, they're, they're more than willing to do that. And right. And the community that was built and felt throughout that whole thing was amazing. Like people were like, how are we all going to keep in touch? You know, uh, mm-hmm. there's like a, like a chat forum in the, in the zoom meeting. And 
So, you know, we're, we're sort of pivoting side door to facilitate these kinds of ticketed online events. And um, it's actually really exciting to me that, you know, potentially we could offer a solution um, for the foreseeable future and all this coronavirus yeah. madness that, you know, artists could continue to play concerts through our platform. Considering the situation that the world is in right now, the effects of COVID-19 will be long-lasting in not only the ways that we organize our economies, but also in how we relate to those systems that govern our lives. While there's no doubt that this crisis is a terrible thing for many, many people, whose physical and mental health and economic well-being is currently threatened, this crisis also offers us an opportunity to rethink the system in which we live. Dan shared his insight on what this means for artists and the world at large as we navigate this unprecedented time and find ways to come out of it. You know, I, it's funny, like, I'm at this point, um, I'm not, like, scrambling for cash, you know? I think that, I mean, I, I hope that it doesn't come to that. I hope that we can kind of work our way out of that. Mm-hmm. And right now, I'm just sort of focused less on making money for myself and more focused on a continuing to be engaged with people online and be trying to move the conversation for the broader societal element of, of artists and, and also just in terms of like where the economy needs to shift. And I think coronavirus is going to forever change society. And what I, one thing that I hope comes out of it is that we can take seriously the conversation of universal basic income. And, uh, and I think that, um, you know, it's sort of like we needed like a really drastic event, you know, it's sort of like it, it it takes, it takes the depression to pass the new deal, you know, and, and uh, revolution to throw capitalism. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, and I, 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 it's like, I, I believe not in sort of like, you know, a, a, a metaphorically violent overthrowing of capitalism, no, yeah. but I do believe in a shift. And I do believe that like, you know, that we need to, we need to like realign our values as a society so that we are putting people before profits. And, you know, like we have this sort of like the greatest trick the devil pulled, you know, is getting people to vote against their own interests it's this idea yeah. of like, you know, I'm yeah. on welfare, I collect Medicaid, I, you know, but I don't want to, I don't want to vote for anything that sounds remotely socialist because if I ever become a billionaire, I want it all, you know? I know. It's so crazy. And it's a really, really weird head twist that's been sold through like subversive ideology over decades mm-hmm. and decades. And I, it's really bizarre, but... Um, you know, I just feel like the actual impact it would have on the highest crust of, of earners in society is so minimal so and would largely exactly. be completely unnoticeable in their day-to-day life. And yet the ramifications that that sacrifice would have to lift, you know, a, an entire third or half of the population out of desperate struggling would yeah. create a general sense of well-being and peace of mind for all yeah. of society like if and economic growth which is what they keep saying 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and it's like, and then people are spending more money and it's like, you know, do, do we all want, do we all want to live in a world where there's gated communities where rich people are, feel protected and safe. And then outside those gated communities is just poverty and, and war. And, you know, it's like desperate, yeah. desperate people do desperate things. And, you know, if need be desperate people will resort to violence. And exactly. so what if we just make sure that nobody feels desperate, you know? Yeah, totally. And, uh, and so what, if, you know, it's like, the, the other thing is the other analogy is like, you know, if the wealthiest among us are, are eating like this huge cake and mm -hmm. there's like a tiny little sliver of the cake that's been put on a plate for the rest of us. And everyone's fighting over the crumbs. Meanwhile, yeah. you know, there's like, there's a whole cake there. Yeah. And, uh, and like, there's like this weird twist where it's like, Oh, those people, they feel entitled to the cake, you know, like, like, like those, the, those, those, those lazy people who feel entitled to having some of this cake that I earned yeah. completely through my, you know, uh, nepotistic ties to, to wealth. <laughs> and, uh, <Yeah>. and, uh, <laughs> it's just like this weird twist, like the, the, the word entitlement, it's like any word, right? Oh, like, yeah. like, like mm -hmm. it can, it can be used on either side. Like if I told you that I ran a foundation called like the Liberty Society, you would just assume that that was like a conservative think tank or something like mm -hmm. that, because it's <laughs> that word Liberty has been co-opted by, you know, led by a certain sort of faction of the political spectrum. Um, and so the way that words are used, like as weapons and as galvanizers and stuff, it's, it's really remarkable. Like people talk about freedom and, you know, it's, I saw a great tweet the other day. I was saying like, you know, in America, freedom means the freedom to, you know, choose between 36 kinds of shampoo um, and, and like, you know, lose your house, and all your savings because you got sick. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, for me, freedom, what freedom means is that if I get sick, I go to a doctor, they treat me, I leave, and I don't use my credit card at all. You know, like yeah. there is no, like to me, that's freedom is to be able to sort of know that my basic needs are being met um, and, that, and that I'm not, you know, drowning in stress and medical bills. There was a, I saw a, a story recently about, somebody reaching out to a, like a Muslim politician over Twitter and saying, you know, go home and, you know, calling him all sorts of nasty names. And the Muslim politician like went and kind of looked up this dude on Facebook. And of course the guy has a GoFundMe page and he's drowning in debt for medical bills. And like, this yeah. is a guy who's a Trump supporter advocating for not so that, you know, to not have universal health care. And so yeah. the politician donated to the guy's GoFundMe page and they, you know, got on the phone and talked for an hour. And then you got this like sort of rampant Trump fan swinging across the aisle and like wow. taking a picture with this Muslim politician going like, oh, we're best buds now. And it's like, man, that's amazing. Like someone just extended an olive branch, you know? And, um, yeah. and I mean, at the core, it's like, I mean, sometimes, you know, having coronavirus is like a, not having it specifically personally, but just like the, that right. the world has to deal with this. It's almost like a common enemy, you know, like the idea that exactly. it, it doesn't discriminate. It's like the opposite of a cat or a baby online. Like, like, mm -hmm. you know, cats, cats and babies are the only thing that aren't political on the internet. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're a hippie or a redneck, you know, you, you will, you will heart them 
all the same. <laughs> and uh, in a way, coronavirus is like the opposite of that. It's like the malevolent version of, of a cat online. Reveals all the politics everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the midst of such uncertain times, I hope this episode has offered some advice, insight, or at the very least, a good way to pass the time while in quarantine. From my perspective, artists provide a service that is especially essential at times like these. So keep supporting your favorite artists by streaming their music, buying their records, buying merch, and sharing them with your friends, from a distance, of course. <laughs> to close, here's some final advice from Kieran and Dan on how artists can continue to build their careers at such a difficult time. I guess I'll just sum everything up. I would say that being giving yourself a sense of treating yourself like you are a small business and understanding that you are suffering, but understanding that it is a time where if you have the opportunity and if you have the support that you can and, and really ought to um, build up your sense of education and look at really what it is that you don't know um, about what it is that you're trying to do and to develop right. it in such a way and not to worry too much about the money because um, if you don't have to, uh, I should say, it's, it's, yeah. I, I do count myself as very privileged not having the dependence, not having any dependence or under, underlying health issues that make me worried about uh, eating or what have you. But, you know, to look at your life, to look at your, your habits, to look at your sense of self, uh, to examine where your stress and where your anxiety is coming from, and to really take a holistic approach and understand that this is a journey that can take years and years and years. And there are many artists that don't start, quote unquote, making it until they're in their mid 30s or even into their 40s or 50s. So it's it's deeply important to look at it as if you really want to be an artist and you really want to explore that space to understand that you are a person that probably doesn't know as, they, as much as they need to. But they that that's a good place to start. It's not a bad place to start. Um, right. And even to, in the context of a setback economically. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because you really learn about that. Like I, I, I definitely if I were in the position that I was two years ago where I was gigging full time and this had happened, I would have been totally out in my ass, like with with no with n n no life support, no life support whatsoever. And I would have felt very, very vulnerable. So I totally understand a lot of people's situations. But fortunately, mm -hmm. I'm, in, I'm in a position right now where I've made a decision in my career from a position of strength where I feel optimistic, basically, no, no matter what happens. So mm -hmm. um, I hope that I can pass on that energy to other people. And if not, I really feel for your struggle. And um, I hope that you find some solace in what you're doing. Any advice you would give to other artists, um, whether they're, you know, sort of mid, more established career level like you are, or really starting out? What would you what would you tell them right now? Well, normally I'd say <laughs> buy a van and play a thousand shows, but um, that's not really an option right now. Um, I would say get creative. You know, like just think outside the box. We did a, I did a Instagram live, um, split screen reading of the Princess Bride on Thursday with my my buddy Stephen Og. Um, you know, and it was just like, I was just texting with him and he's, he's in Vancouver here cause he's been shooting here and he's stuck alone in his apartment and he's bored and he's lonely. And <laughs> we were like, well, what if we did something really ridiculous? Like read the princess bride. And he was like, let's do it. So, you know, it's, it's like, uh, that was really fun. And I think that a lot of people got a kick out of that. And, um, yeah. 
I mean, I, I think, you know, if you're feeling isolated, engage in, in ways that are interesting and new. I, I saw one band that was, you know, they were getting people to write them with their name and they were on the spot writing like little 15 second songs that included people's names Aww, and stuff. And, that's cool. You know, and it's like not everything needs to be monetized and everything, but like, you know, I think just sort of taking this moment, I mean, obviously there's lots of bummers about this moment, but there's always, always, always in every crisis an opportunity. So, you know, what are the silver linings of this moment and how is it going to positively change things uh, as well as, you know, as we know, negatively change things. Thank you so much to Kubla and Dan Mangan for their contributions to this episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Offkey. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you would like me to cover, please email me at offkey at membran.net or send me a message at either Membran Labs or TaliaSW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Chilotti. Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro, outro, and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them. <laughs>